we're going to start today's session with something very different from what we normally do at these sessions. Our programming is almost entirely focused on entrepreneurs and investors discussing um, you know, different investment strategies, investment pieces, as well as entrepreneur pitches. We will do that, but today I have invited Dr. Brahmar Mukherjee from University of Michigan. She's a biostatistician and a chair of the biostatistics department, a professor of epidemiology and professor of global public health at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. This is incredibly uh, timely, and I happened to read about Brummer's work in, in some, I always kind of do a little research every day or every other day on what's happening in India by way of coronavirus, uh, you know, statistics, measures, uh, reporting, news, et cetera, and, and her name came up, so I went and looked her up, and I said, oh, she's the perfect person for us to have um, listen, hear from here today, and learn about what is on every one of our minds timeline and what can we, you know, what predictions can we derive out of the situation. Now, of course, it's very difficult to derive anything, predict anything, but at least people who have knowledge and have methodology are trying to do their best. Ramor, welcome to the show. It's so great to see you, meet you, and have you here. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you, Stramona, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. So let's start with, um, you know, we are looking at a terrifying situation right now for small businesses, which is our world. You know, the large companies are going to make it. Either they're going to make it on their own or they're going to make it with government bailouts. The airlines are going to get bailouts and so on and so forth. And, and in our industry, the large companies are actually doing very well. They're not struggling. Facebook, Microsoft, these are you know the, the top five technology companies make up most of the S&P 500. So this is not a problem for them particularly. But we are looking at a terrifying situation for small businesses that have very limited runway. They don't have they can't survive on their own for unlimited amounts of time. And in our world, runway equates largely to cash. Unless customers produce revenues or investors infuse funding, companies run out of cash. So how long is the economic freeze going to last? And if the vaccine takes 18 months to be in the market, we're looking at 2021 for normalcy to return to the economy. How do you process the timeline question? So uh, thank you, Stramona, for that question. If I could have an answer for that, then probably I will uh, win a million dollars somewhere in some part of the world. So the fact is that we are in uncharted territory for policymaking. And I am not an economist, I am a public health data scientist, so I can project in terms of the cycle of the virus and virus curve. Um, yeah. But I have to say those projections have limitations. But the, this is a question where the two are intrinsically intertwined, because you really cannot decouple the public health component from the economic component. 
So how to come up with an approach so that uh, public health compromises probably a little bit with suboptimal mitigation as we come out of the lockdown, and then we charter a path forward for economic recovery as well. So we cannot, it is very clear that we cannot shut everything down. Lockdown is not a solution for those 18 months. So we have to figure out how to really survive and sustain as a society, as a holistic system where public health is there, societal component is there, families, how families are functioning with, with distress. Because after yeah, all, yeah. So after mental health and when you are cooped up uh, in a home and with the, there are a, even from India, where most of my work has been, uh, there are several reports, very disturbing news of domestic violence increasing during this period yeah. of time. So mm -hmm. all of the social consequences and confluences coming together as, at us. So you have to really think about from a more holistic perspective what is sustainable. So I think from a workplace point of view, and I can think about like as an educator, also we have similar situations. If you cannot yes. really get students in a classroom, how is an university sustainable? So we have seen hiring freeze, salary freeze, no um, non-essential travel, uh, every restriction being imposed on universities all across the United States, particularly I, I, am, I, I know the situation in Michigan. So everybody will have to live under very modest means and get through this time. I think that's understood in all sectors of business, including education. If you think about students not being able to go to a classroom, is this just like a really devastating consequence for educators and also for learners? So we are figuring out that how to, so I don't want to be this bleak that we are going to give up because uh, humanity has never given up. Uh, if you think about World War II, that's when Alan Turing built the Turing machine, which is giving all these tech companies that you're seeing. So the inventions that happen during a wartime science can actually advance humanity because we are all so focused in inventions right now and innovations. So I, I want to be a little bit more hopeful that there are new technologies, new science, which are going to come out of this period because we are uh, back against the wall fighting back, I think is going to really advance things and investments in the period. So the strategy is how do we sustain this time period? So how do you so collaborate? Let me ask you a question, actually, that you brought up. Um, you know, it's a good segue into an area which I think is very ripe for innovation. Innovation has been happening. It's not like innovation hasn't been happening, but it's, it's certainly there is a long way to go, is distance learning. Right now we're all practicing distance learning. Even, you know, people who are past universities are doing distance learning. Um, you know, I religiously, every day, I open up my Duolingo and, and study French. So that's just, you know, one variety of distance learning. But I think um, the, the parts of the distance learning ecosystem that are not working so well are the kids' education. I think um, the elementary education is not working very well. So there is clearly stuff to do there and innovation to create there. On the higher education side, distance learning is better uh, positioned. What is, your, what is your analysis of, uh, since you are in academia and you are facing this head on, what is your, uh, what is your read? Yes, yeah, so, so 
couple of things. One is it is very tied to the timeline as well. So I, I do think that there has been tremendous innovation to so the entire university hats off to all the educators and learners all across the world. We converted uh, in our university, for example, I chaired this department, my faculty converted within a period of three days into remote mm -hmm. teaching. And then they figured yeah. out, you know, math is really hard to teach online because you need that real-time working out of equations. But everybody figured out how to really plug in their tablet and iPads to blue jeans and write equations and project them. And we could have done that before too in our office hours and other times that we are lazy, but we didn't do it. But within a period of one day, we figured out how to do that. So, uh, and then we figured out how to keep people engaged. That's the thing, right? If you are continuously lecturing, people are going to, if you, they're not in a classroom, in, even in a classroom, they get distracted. So when they're on yeah. their own in their home, they're just going to play it on and enroll, have their video and the microphone off and just tune out. So we figured out ways to use things like poll everywhere, which is an internet-based polling system where you ask questions and students text you and um, or they can go to a website and actually um, put their, down their answers. And they also can type text so you can see the word cloud. So one of my um, colleagues started this every class with tell me something good. And then their word, word cloud will evolve with all the sentiments and the feelings in the classroom. So I think this is also an interesting thing. We have to look at the positive side that this type of education has given learners who are quiet a voice because your identity is not revealed through this, uh, uh, sharing this information and also the chat function. People who will normally not talk raise their hands. I see this in a faculty meeting that silent spectators and the audience, everybody has a voice because you feel more comfortable using the chat function. So, but I have to reiterate that Michigan is not just Ann Arbor. Michigan is also Detroit, where there are people and students who do not have the bandwidth in terms of their internet connection. So this, we are forgetting, I think, that we are really talking about issues and problems, and I am, a, I am to blame as well, uh, which are uh, relevant to certain segment of the population. We have no idea what the situation in other part of the have so this coronavirus pandemic for me at least underscored even more the demarcation between the haves and have nots so the yeah. learning yeah the learning outcomes on, on are that actually, on yeah. that I, I have a couple of comments it's actually a very important point to underscore uh, the digital divide is becoming very stark at the moment on the one hand which is on the especially on the learning side and the second digital divide is the, the digital economy versus the physical economy, right? The digital economy can function. Our universe can function. We have the luxury of thinking of higher order problems, whereas the physical economy, you know, people's livelihoods are uh, jeopardized and, and their problems are, are much, you know, much more fundamental. So um, on that, one of the innovations, policies, infrastructure investments that we hope will come out of this on the other end of the coronavirus pandemic is a you know, broader deployment of free 5G bandwidth access. You know, if you don't have bandwidth access, you cannot do distance learning. 
and, and the, the segments you are referring to don't have bandwidth access, they don't have computer access. So, so that's, that's one area where, you know, after the war, highways were built. Well, we need to build digital highways so that people have access. And, uh, however, on the, on the physical economy side, going back to timeline, for us, you know, the decisions are when do we launch products? When, do, when does demand come back? When do we start? When, when are we able to close deals? Stuff like that. Those are the concerns of the digital economy. When, when does funding start becoming available again, et cetera? The physical economy, like actually going to work in a factory, going to, you know, right now a lot of farm produce is rotting in the fields. They're not getting picked. There's a whole, you know, series of stuff that are going on that need to be addressed that are, you know, much darker. So, uh, which leads me to another question that I want to explore with you is, um, what, what is data science teaching us through this process about evolution? Clearly, you know, in terms of survival of the fittest, the digital economy is emerging to be a lot fitter than the physical economy. How do you process this? And, and what, what is data science telling us? So I, I'll thank you for that question. This is a very broad philosophical question, but I think we can only uh, think about and uh, surmise that what some of these uh, problems are and how is data science helping us. So first of all, I think data science, as you, your first question was, is helping us to understand the flow of the virus curve. And I have to uh, reiterate that we see in the media that models are changing very uh, abruptly, like overnight the projections are changing. So all statistical models and epidemiologic projection models are really wrinkled with assumptions. So uh, one peak and one surge in cases can actually really change things. And this is tremendous need to update these models daily. So for example, for India, we built an app where um, it is automated. Every day the death count and the case count come in, the projections update. Because just stop it on one particular day and do projections and do this academic work of writing a paper and forgetting about it does not really solve the problem here. So we are really having to figure out this uh, data adaptive and continuously updating automatic solutions and computational solutions. So in Michigan, I, learn, I really learned the advanced computing system because we have models for every state in India and all of India, sorry. Um, so I, I definitely uh, want to really want to mention that, that that is something that the continuous adaptation to the challenges is something that we really need to be mindful of. Um, another thing that, so it is telling us about the timeline. We know that, that you know, the, this, these prediction models are sort of give, are very good at short-term uh, prediction, not so much in terms of long-term predictions. Um, and so it is telling us that we are in this for a long haul. So we can actually argue about, about the different numbers coming out of these projection models, but what is important is the ultimate message that we are in this for a long haul. There is probably a first peak, which is going to die down, but then there could be a second peak in the fall. So we have to have a long-term strategy in instead of a discrete set of tactics. 
Another thing which I think is very important, which is under, it's really not pointed out that much in media, that how much role data science and um, network models can actually play as businesses are thinking about reopening. So when you are thinking about reopening, as you said, that some of the work can be done digitally, but probably there is some value of face-to-face -face interaction, and that actually keeps the morale and the purpose of an employee up when we are thinking about a long term, because none of us took this job that we are doing from home right now. So if you think about a network model, there are three goals in terms of reopening. One is to how to minimize the spread of the virus. Second, how to retain your core critical functions of an organization. And the third thing is a little altruistic, but still very important. How do you bring meaning and purpose still in your employment? And that could be through virtual engagement, but also what are critical face-to-face -face interactions. So I think you can build network models of a community understanding that what is the person-to-person -person and person-to-object transmission. So for example, coffee makers, coffee, that place is really a place where everybody touches everything. So a solution could be that everybody has their own coffee machine, but still gets together for a virtual coffee hour. Right? So these are the little tweaks. At a very micro level, we have to think. The whiteboard, everybody touches it, but probably we give everybody their own personal whiteboard in the classroom. So some, some things which still retains, but still minimizes transmission, we have to think very creatively and use data there too. And in terms of evolution, that's a very broad question, right? So uh, natural selection and origin of species, I have been reading a lot about science, right? What did people do when the 1918 uh, Spanish flu happened? Um, were people feeling like this, this agony, this fear, this anxiety, this sense of loss? And where did they find hope? And I think that one thing, so I looked at Michigan, what did the University of Michigan do during the pandemic? So they did not, Michigan did not close down. Ann Arbor was a city of 18,000 people and we lost 100 lives. And we cannot just look at numbers. These are like people and lost lives. But what people were really uh, sad about is that these other things have gone away from their life, which is orchestra, theater. There was supposed to be a brilliant uh, concert pianist coming and, uh, um, and an opera singer coming. And those were canceled that fall. And we can see newspaper that people are complaining about that. So I think this thing about controlling the virus the economy, but also how to really keep the human spirit. This should be a part of every strategy because that really helps us. The public has a strong role to play in public health. And health is emotional, physical, and you know, just disease-oriented health. So uh, I'd say that well, we are adapting. The point that you're raising is, is emotional, physical, and also economic, all these aspects of life, of human life, you know, broadly characterized as large events, is, is a massive economic segment. And a lot of people's livelihoods depend on that. You know, there is the whole sports industry is gigantic. The amount of, you know, sports-related um, economic activity is huge. The artists, I mean, I was talking to the De Young Museum uh, just this week. What is going to happen? When are museums ever going to open? It's going to take two years before museums can go back to any kind of normalcy. Nobody's going to go to museums. I don't think anybody's going to go to museums. 
who who will gratuitously gratuitously go to get infected in large spaces so what what is the alternative there's like every segment has to rethink those tweaks those small tweaks that you're talking about in some cases big tweaks especially for the large events part it's big tweaks the you know the music festivals all summer long there are great music festivals everywhere it's summer is when tanglewood comes together and then we have music at menlo here and all over the world people come together around music and all these music festivals are getting canceled and and there is an economic cost to it there's an emotional cost to it and and so on and so forth but what is the future of all this we don't know yet and and a lot of these organizations just don't have the capability to sustain themselves without you know these revenues these are not like highly profitable places where they have a lot of they squirrel away a lot of money so this is a this segment is actually facing one of the worst existential crises of our times now to summarize a, a bit of from a timeline point of view i was thinking a few scenarios one of the key questions at the moment is is there going to be a treatment or not and by the end of may there is going to be results of a bunch of trials uh, especially towards three drug trials look promising and there could be you know something some alleviation of the fear factor if there is good news on that front but it's not guaranteed because i saw some of the remdesivir uh trial data it's just very minor it's like reducing four days of hospital time which helps the hospitals but it doesn't really make feel people feel particularly you know secure that they're not going to get infected and not land up in the hospital so that's not a particularly encouraging trial the one that um you know we follow the what's happening in france very closely i'm married to a belgian and and we have a french speaking household so we can follow what's happening in that language a lot of the um, you know south of france marseille dr uh, didier rau their results are much more encouraging actually but because trump has been touting this drug this has become a highly politicized affair which is maddening really we want to hear what's happening on the science side we don't we are not interested in the politics of this drug but but it is it is what it is this is the reality of the world is politics encumbers everything so so all you know regardless let's say there is one inflection point at the end of may when we have some more data where we know you know whether we have a treatment to work with or not which gives us a little bit of a ammunition to treat to deal with things the other thing is what you're talking about is uh india and some other countries where things are uh unknown right now we don't really understand exactly what is going on here is this going to get out of hand is it not going to get out of hand and if you know if the slums of india get out of hand we are going to see a oh boy survival of the fittest of the worst kind this is going to be an absolute nightmare so so we are all bracing ourselves holding our breath to see what happens there um so you know i was thinking from a data science question point of view in 2 years there is going to be actual data and that data is going to tell us things 
One of the things this data is going to tell us, most likely, and I'm going to give you a scenario that I've been toying with, um, you know there's been a lot of community spread because of religious gatherings. So we are in the month of Ramadan right now, and there's a lot of imams who believe and who um, spread that this, what's happening is due to the wrath of God, and they need to get together and, and do prayer meetings and, uh, you know, worship and, and give money to the imams so that all this, you know, settles down. Now, if we, I, I can guarantee if we look backwards two years later on the data, there's going to be a tremendous amount of the infection spread and the deaths that would be attributable directly to religious events. So if somebody wants to look at that and create a narrative around it that, you know, what is the basis of theology? This is a question that actually now has a data support, data to support it. So, so there are, there's going to be a lot of fundamentals that can be questioned and that can be uh, dealt with, thank you, uh, dealt with with data and data science. Uh, what, what are you thinking when, when you, right now we're trying to model and trying to predict, which is hard to do because there are so many unknowns, even basics are unknown, like whether kids get affected, whether young people get affected. Some young people are getting strokes right now, so the fact that we need to only protect the elderly and not the young people is, 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 is a false we don't know. The answer is we don't know. So, so there's one side of you as a data scientist, I'm sure, is you're wondering what's the, what do you do to predict. There's another part of you, I'm sure, that if, you know, as a computer scientist, I'm thinking, you know, when I have the data, these are the scenarios that I would model and, and try to see what's, uh, what that's telling us. And that starts to question a lot of humanity's fundamental beliefs. How do you uh, how do you think of this? So, having grown up in the household of an artist, so I have always been thinking about science in a much more of a holistic continuum coupled with society, and thinking about you know all the Russell, Romarola, Tagore, all of those lessons uh, which are philosophical in nature, but what does it tell you about civilization and what does it tell you about science? So a uh, couple of things. One thing I'd like to say is that we knew very little of this virus two months ago. And gradually, the knowledge has evolved, as you're seeing. And in two oh, years, sorry. we'll know a lot more. And we are yeah. learning at a very rapid uh, pace. So for example, yeah. I'm currently analyzing. So the case count and death counts do, would only tell you this much. You need, of course, individual level data in order to predict who is going to be hospitalized. Like the people who are having asymptomatic infections or mild symptoms to be managed at home, those are not our primary concern. We really need to predict who is going to the hospital and who is going to the ICU, who is getting uh, like a much more fatal outcome. So that work is really going on in terms of just agnostic exploration of the electronic health record data of all of these patients 
from the hospitals. I am involved in a project in Michigan where we are just mining completely to identify susceptible, vulnerable populations. Because that's where our, so I think that there is a lot of focus on drugs as it should be, but we really need to understand that treatment is a part of health, but prevention is also important. We cannot just go do whatever we like and then think of it just right. a treatment right. to cure us. So I think it yeah. has to be a balance between both and how to charter a path so that we know who are the high priority and the truly the highly susceptible thing. One thing that we learned about the virus is this microthrombia, that this coagulation, that the blood clots that are happening, sometimes it's happening at a more larger level, but these COVID dose and the other um, evidence that you're seeing, this is completely new. So I think medicine is moving at a very fast rate when we are seeing this unusual symptoms of uh, COVID uh, virus infection. So we are going to know a lot. So what I am interested in from a couple of things, because this is such a complex problem, as you pointed out, it is engulfing everything, society, uh, evolution, medicine, public health, economics, uh, mental health, so religion. So I'm really, uh, what the question that I want to look at is that really this massive uh, omnibus of data that we have, electronic health records, people's social belief, how do you define uh, environment? For many people, we have genetics. How to mine this in order to understand who are particularly mm -hmm. susceptible from not, not just from a genetics point of view. Some because of their occupation, they are frontline health workers and they're essential yeah. workers and at delivery stores. Some because of their genetics, some because of the comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, uh, kidney disease. Who should we protect first? Who should yep. we protect first in order to reduce the fatality and then assume, yes, some of us are going to get it like flu, but we are going to be okay. And from that mm -hmm. point of view, we need to really eat healthy, practice our good lifestyle and behavioral choices so that we do not end up in that comorbidity cluster. So for me, this predicting the most vulnerable from a holistic societal perspective and be it religiosity, be it like, you know, poverty, be it genetics, be it uh, BCG vaccination in India, how to incorporate that in a big model so that I can protect and reduce human loss and suffering. I can integrate the data science, the agnostic and the hypothesis driven queries in order to minimize loss. So that's what I'm interested in. Yes, and uh, great. And, and uh, there are a few nuances that, that are very direct uh, in, in modeling when we can open up the economy reliably is when there is treatment available, that treatment is not going to be available at scale right away. So there will be prioritization needs. So you're going to have to determine which segments to protect, whether it's the frontline workers, of course, and then there's lots of other segments that are of vulnerability. Then there's if, when there's a vaccine. That's also going to, 7 billion people need to be vaccinated. That's not going to happen overnight. That's going to take time uh, to produce enough vaccines to do that. And there's going to be the politics of it. Uh, you know, the people who are the most vulnerable, who live in the closest quarters and are the most susceptible to community spread are the ones who are not going to get the vaccine because they can't afford the vaccine. And the politics and the economics of this of public health is going to take over. And the people who actually are perhaps less susceptible are going to get it first. So again, survival of the fittest is going to kick in gear and, and, and we're going to see 
devastation because of all of that. So I think we're looking at, you know, at least two years of dreadful times. Is that a reasonable conclusion? So I'd like to say that uh, maybe not two years of dreadful time, but really a different uh, modulated change in life is going to be different. Even if we reopen, until all of these questions are settled, life is going to be different. And another thing for us, uh, I would say that whose families are apart, uh, you know, my parents and my entire family is in India, and it's not clear when travel restrictions will be released. So the, so the whole world will probably be much more static. And these types of wandering, when you have your aging parents transatlantic and you cannot really go, that has a toll on human anxiety, stress, and we need yeah. not, we don't One need to. right now, yes. Yeah, so, so we need to really pay attention to these things, not just think about the bigger picture, but at a micro level, what humanity is undergoing and create support systems for that. So sometimes it may be motivational interviewing, expressive writing. Uh, sometimes it could be amateurish musicians in my uh, apartment complex singing songs on a balcony, but we really need to rise to the occasion to give that uh, support that uplifting, that elevation to each other. I think that cannot be undermined as we are going through this. We are all connected to this process and we are all suffering. So I think that coupled with science, I think that's very, very important. We are looking at a different way of life. The initial fear and anxiety is probably going to subside of death if we have a promising drug, but whether you're going to get the disease or not, whether the virus is going to be in your community or not, Wearing masks is very challenging for some people to go out, but um, social distancing, having happy hours in a virtual way, all these things are difficult, but we have to practice because we just cannot risk the life of others and have to really persevere through. I also think that, you know, we have been so blessed. We have had so much comfort and we have never seen what our parents and grandparents sometimes have experienced. If you think about the Great Depression, then came the New Deal, which made America a better society. So uh, with this time, there are going to be changes and we are going to prioritize and we are going to think what is of great importance, what is most important to us. So my morale has been that, yes, it is going to be, we have to grind our teeth and go through this long haul when the virus curve will uh, peak and flatten and peak again. But I want humanity to be at its apex thinking about what we have learned to treat each other with empathy and to really embrace a holistic view of society in terms of science, in terms of politics. I really want to see that elevation after these two years. Thank you, Pramor, on that note. Very well said, very uh, well put. Thank you for participating. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, and I, for entrepreneurs who are listening, Yes, it's going to be tough. For the next two years, it's going to be really, really tough. And things are going to be slow and things are going to be, you know, different. Things are going to be, uh, as it is, entrepreneur journeys are, are difficult. But now it's going to be a lot more difficult. So the, the message that I have for you entrepreneurs in this broader context is Going back to something I wrote a long time ago, 
in the 2000, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, I wrote a book called Bootstrapping Weapon of Mass Reconstruction. It is true that right now, funding is drying up. You know, why? Because investors have already invested in companies and they need to make those companies survive. So before they take on new investment commitments, they're going to need to try to funnel money into the ones that, are, that they've already invested in that risk going under. So yes, there's going to be shortage of investment, and you are going to have to bootstrap. Most entrepreneurs will have to settle down into bootstrapping. I have always been of the opinion that bootstrapping is one of the best ways to build businesses. So, you know, three years later, when the economy settles down, if you have built a solid bootstrap business, very frugal, very tightly managed, you know, very full of empathy and, and good culture within your, within your employee base, because that's what keeps companies together, you know, bootstrap companies in particular, where money is not flowing like the Nile, you have to hold people together through good leadership, through good empathy, through taking care of your employees, taking care of your colleagues, taking care of one another. That's how companies hold together through tough times and with good vision. So you have to practice good leadership and build good bootstrap businesses. And those who will succeed in doing that, those who have the discipline and the and the control, mental control over doing stuff like this. This takes a lot of mental control. So those of you who will succeed in doing that will emerge out of this as very strong companies and, and you will be able to go to great lengths because of that. And innovation is happening. Innovation will continue to happen. This is the time to rise to the occasion. So, Romar, thank you very much. I, if you need to go, you're uh, welcome to drop off. We will do a, an, an investor pitch next. And all the best to everyone listening. Thank you so much, Ramona. Bye-bye. Take care.